What is you don't you want to begin with the azan or something? Huh? You want to be, begin with the azan? No. <laughs> okay. okay. Um. So I guess the first question is, what are some of the most significant accomplishments in your life? I've not really accomplished anything. Okay. <laughs> this is gonna be a really short paper. <laughs> so it, it doesn't have to be related to work. No. Kind of anything. Tough question. Um, I think uh, uh, being a father would be somewhere up there, um, but I don't know if we can quantify like a moment. It's not like their birth was an accomplishment. I didn't really have to do anything, but um, they're, uh, I mean, they're run away from me. <laughs> That's an accomplishment. Yeah, I think so. Um, mm, this is a really hard one because I don't know that I look at my life according to accomplishments. I mean, I've gotten a couple of degrees, um, but I almost feel like that was done passively. Um, all of them? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you do the work and stuff, but it's like now those are all so long ago. This, you know, it's not like uh, I feel proud or anything. You know, more recent memory is beating the NSA in Jeopardy. <laughs> um, some other accomplishments. Hey, this finals. We will make a comeback this finals. Inshallah. Yeah, I don't know because the, the hard part is with when I'm hearing the word accomplishment, I'm hearing like a point of completion, right? Mm -hmm. uh, something out of the ordinary. And even though people disagree, I find my life to be very, very plain. And a lot of things that happen in my life I just happen to be at the right place at the right time. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that, if that makes any sense. So, okay. um, like, like uh, when it snows and I clear the driveway, that for me feels like an accomplishment, in part because uh, it's difficult and I don't want to do it. Right. Um, um, would you say holding the status you hold in the community would be an accomplishment? I think other people would. Um, and I'm not saying this out of modesty or of any sort. I don't feel like I really actually really did anything, right? Okay. You know, a lot of that is also me just happening to be at the right place at the right time. Yeah, it's fair to say that uh, I've given literally thousands uh, uh, of hours of talks, of classes, um, and I have a history of dedication to, to community matters. Uh, but those are things I think um, that a person is just is so, just supposed to do, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, uh, I do have some reasonably high status in the Muslim community in Chicago, but I don't know that I earned anything to to get that. And I did, definitely didn't aspire to it like I want to be one of those people. Right? Mm -hmm. I think I'm just I happen to be at that level because of whatever work I've been doing. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So what have been some of the significant challenges in your past life? Well, <laughs> um, always work-life balance has been a big challenge for me, because um, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes even those boundaries are very, very blurred. Um, um, you know, I don't, uh, my life hasn't been the normal pathway that most other people go through, right? Most people go through the normal pathway of you get your degrees for your, towards your professional degree, usually med school, law school, mm -hmm. and then you become a physician or an attorney. Uh, or an engineer, and you know my life trajectory has uh, never been anything close to anything like that. I mean, up till high school, I was a normal kid, right? Mm -hmm. I was the Daisy kid who, who won all the science awards and such, right? Um, but then after that, I started veering away, um, and I think 
part of it is just that um, I was always looking for answers to bigger questions. Even just a simple concept that I always felt when I was sitting, when I was in college, I always felt there had to be more to life than this. That mm -hmm. you work really hard, you get a degree, you get a good job, you get married, and then you raise kids to work really hard to get their degrees, to get their good jobs, to get married, and then that just cycle goes on forever. Um, I always felt that there had to be more to life than that. And so, so the challenge has been to figure out answers to many of those big questions, or even just like the struggle of not being able to conform to the norm of how people live their lives. Right? Uh, I don't know that my priorities are, are anywhere close to the priorities that most of my peers have. Um, and I don't know that I'm capable of having the same priorities, right? I mean, I went to art school, right? Mm -hmm. um, Do you mind elaborating on how, like, after high school, your path was different from, like, the typical? Sure. I mean, one issue was that um, I, uh, I was a lazy kid, and uh, I went to a high school that wasn't very challenging, mm -hmm. okay? And so I, I graduated near the top of my class, and like I said, I won, I won you know, so many of the awards especially literally almost all the science awards. I think literally all the science awards that my school got, I'm the one who got them, right, for my year, right? Okay, do you think a part of that was because you felt like you weren't being challenged by the other people as much as? Yeah, I think that's part of it, right? Um, and I mean, uh, I had, you know, my parents, like normal Daisy parents, really put uh, a lot of effort in making sure I learned things. You know, my father started, you know, forcing me to learn algebra probably when I was like in fourth grade or something like that, right? Which that for me was normal, that right? sucks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I did almost the same thing with, with my daughters, right? Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, so I didn't find that material to be all that difficult, right? So I wasn't getting challenged. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that I was super smart or anything like that. Um, it's just that I wasn't really getting... Uh, challenge for all that and so um, I also because I was lazy I didn't really care about much of anything it's just I was just going through life right in college now I was on my own and I realized that I didn't know anything about myself okay. right? and and so part of it the process of college was me just going through an ongoing process of self-analysis self-discovery and part of that was just thinking to myself that okay um, you know there has to be more life than, than um, you know, this, this normal cycle of things that everyone seems to understand clearly, and I couldn't understand it, right? Uh, and so then eventually I went and switched and transferred into film school and then got, got a, a film degree. Um, and there I was very, very happy. Right? I tried multiple times to be a pre-med. Again, the science wasn't the difficult part. It's just uh, I literally had no interest in it. And even to, to this day, you know, so many of my friends are, are physicians and when I go with them to, to their jobs for whatever, I don't even like being in hospitals. And it's not like a fear of sickness or anything. It's just, that's not my environment. Like mm -hmm. I'm literally, I almost have like an allergic reaction, which is kind of funny because it's a medical reaction to, to, um, to, to hospitals. So what year did you transfer? Probably around my, in terms of total credits, probably around uh, uh, my third year. Okay. Yeah. Um, and even there, I mean, again, this, I mean, when I say this, it sounds like I'm a little arrogant to this stuff. Uh, I wasn't challenged, but I loved challenging myself, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, and I was also, this is also a period I was having sort of an Islamic awakening. Uh, as, I mean, my parents were always religious my whole life. And 
they were always super involved in the local Islamic Center. And, you know, I just was as much as every other kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I really started exploring uh, uh, Islam yeah, as part of my whole journey to figure out what life is. Okay. And, and so, um, so the recurring theme is just, you know, figuring out what are my questions and then figuring out what are my answers. And that's still an ongoing thing uh, today. Okay. Um, The next question would be, uh, what are some of the most important issues you face as an older adult? Well, related to figuring out answers to questions, figuring out how to uh, make the world uh, a better place in the capacity that I can do so. At one level, it's, you know, how to make the world for my children something better than what was handed to me. And you know my parents were were always very very hardworking people, um, uh, but even looking at the increasing amount of dysfunction in our society, how can I, in my capacity, minimize uh, some of that dysfunction or help people in navigate through through the dysfunction, whether it's a dysfunction in the sense of your own self, dysfunction in family, dysfunction in priorities. Um, there's a whole lot of dysfunction that seems to be not only going on, but just increasing um, uh, through time. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions that I wrestle with very, very actively is, all right, what do we do about this? You know, even earlier today, um, you know, I was having my weekly class with Murphy, yeah, you know Murphy, right, he was there last week, um, with, with this student of mine, and the class was an hour and a half, and we just spent an hour just talking about this stuff before even getting to the class material, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, those are some of the things that I've been um, uh, wrestling with, right? And then there's even like, you know, other questions about the world. So, so in our outlook, in our Islamic outlook, this whole world's temporary, right? At some point we're gonna be on their side. Yeah. And so even other questions like in this world, um, we're taught that, you know, your actions are permanent more than anything physical, right? But are there things in this world like, okay, does this world have something real like uh, I mean, this is going to sound almost corny, but it's a real question. Like, is it possible to have true love in this world? Right. That's one of the questions that that, uh, that I wrestle with. I know a lot of people who 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 have that, or a lot of people who had it. You know, I'm thinking of a friend of mine who who was very very deeply in love with his wife, and then she died. Right. He never remarried. Like ten years later. Right. In fact, I have two friends like that, and in both cases, they were very very uh, deeply in love with love with their spouses, and. Um, and so, is it possible for a regular person to really reach that level? Um, and is it possible to reach that level without having a, an unhappy ending in this world, right? Because at some point, your beloved is going to die, right? Yeah. And so, I also have those abstract questions that I also wrestle with, right? I think it's interesting that at your age, you're thinking about that stuff. And like, for college students, half the majority of us are unmarried. Mm-hmm. And that's literally the things that we think about, and yeah. it's like, yeah, I mean, know, it's interesting to see how some things kind of stick with you, regardless of no matter what. Yeah, totally. You are in life. And I think I think part of that is even how that question evolves, because yeah, when I was in my twenties, I had the same question, and I think in my twenties the question was, will I ever be loved, right? Um, and then will I find like a vocation? Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I found a vocation, even though vocations keep finding me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so different than uh, the question, you know, will I be loved? I think the question is, is it possible to reach something really, really like that 
you know, so it, when I was in my 20s, I, I would look at it in a Hollywood, Bollywood type of way, right? Um, and so now I'm looking at something much, much deeper. Like, uh, we have many, many examples in our world of people where the spouse gets very, very sick. And, and so, so let's say the, the wife gets very sick or the husband gets very sick and then the other spouse, you know, is dedicating themselves to take care of, mm -hmm. of that spouse. Uh, I, I think that dedication is decreasing with, with our, our later generations, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, you have this thorough love for someone where when we say through thick and thin, that you're really going to take care of them. So if you're together for 30 years, I think it's understandable. But what if you're together for three years, right? Or what if you're together for one year and your spouse gets terminally ill, right? Mm -hmm. um, will you have that, um, that compulsion to take care of them throughout the entire process? Or will you find yourself thinking, man, I got to get out of this as fast as I can, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, I mean, so it is kind of like the same question, but I think yeah. uh, through the years, it's like different it dimensions, evolves. the same questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, just kind of going along with this question, taking it into a different direction. Yeah. Um, like, I don't know how old your oldest kid is. Take guess. You're not gonna offend me. This is a quick trick question. <laughs> um, Fifteen. Sixteen. Yeah. Oh. Sixteen and a half. The other one's thirteen. Okay. Yeah. So just kind of going based off that, like. I know my parents have certain fears just because they're getting older and it's like, mm -hmm. who's going to take care of us when we get older? Mm -hmm. How does that kind of play in? Because your daughter's, she's daughter? Right? Yeah, you know, both of our daughters, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, she's getting to that older mm -hmm. age where you're like considering, mm -hmm. thinking more so of like, who's going to take care of me when mm -hmm. I'm getting older and stuff? How does that kind of play into I mean, that? <clears throat> I mean, I think um, uh, I approach that two ways. One is little by little, I do wonder about that. Uh, I think I'll probably wonder about it much more. Uh, so I'm 45, and in, inshallah, when I'm 55, 65, I'm sure I'll wonder about that much, much more. Because mm -hmm. still, I, I, I have the capacity to be completely independent, right? Uh, as I start becoming less independent, I think those questions will really come to mind. Okay. Um, uh, but I, little by little, I do have those questions. On the other hand, uh, looking at all the, the wrong choices I've made in life, um, you know, I've still always been taken care of. Right, uh, even when I was on my own, like things, always in matters of like sustenance uh, and shelter, things always have worked out. I mean, there have been times where I've been so broke that I found a quarter on the floor and I thought, wow, I got a quarter, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and so, still, um, and there have been times where I had to miss meals, right? But um, um, I still was always okay. Mm -hmm. Right. So one half of me, I'm sure if we do this interview 10, 20 years from now, that side will keep increasing in terms of concern. And the other half of me is sort of me reminding myself that, yeah, life just keeps going on and those things will still uh, work out. Right. So let's say something horrendous happens here and I lose my job. Right. Um, it might be, I might have to go through a period of embarrassment, period of shock, but I will still probably be okay. Yeah. And then, like, how would you say, obviously, a song that, like, do you think of death? But, like, how would you say, through a song, how do you, like, process that, I guess? Or, like, how does a song play a role in that? Yeah, I mean, <coughs> so, so more than my actual death, uh, I think of um, uh, my, my day of judgment, right? 
And so I do think about my death only the sense that, all right, I'm no longer this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really applies more to, all right, what's it going to be like for, for my loved ones if I'm not here, right? And even there, it's mostly like, you know, what's it going to be like for my daughters if, if their father's no longer here, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, I mean, I know a lot of people kind of, they don't want to die because there's some things they want to do in life. Um, my ambitions kind of like don't work that way. Okay. So, I mean, if it's time for me to go, it's time for me to go, right? But um, um, So does that not scare you at all? The idea of just, if something were to happen, then pull I mean, pasta. <laughs> like, I mean, uh, just some, at this point in life, do you not feel like you have things you still have to do? I mean, not really, right? Um, in the sense that I don't know what that would be, right? especially because the world's temporary. So suppose I wanted to run the 100 meter uh, race faster than anybody else or build the tallest skyscraper or something. Um, mm-hmm. at some point all that's going to be gone or even in this world that stuff's going to be forgotten right and so I mean I find it fascinating when we hear about some celebrity like so many celebrities have died this year and I think it's fascinating because like uh, at one point we revered them and then at some point we just forgot about many of them and then they died yeah. and then in some time they're all going to be forgotten right yeah. and even their accomplishments are going to be forgotten and so I think that's also what I look at when I look at, you know, whatever it is that I do. So, uh, uh, in the work that I do, I've had various levels of impact on people's lives, right? And some of those people will forget it, I will forget it. Some of those people, it'll, 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 they'll carry it with them for years and the way I carry some of the ways people have impacted me. Um, but then 100 years from now, all this is gonna be forgotten because we're all gonna be gone, right? Um, the Day of Judgment, however, uh, it's a very different thing. Uh, looking at it as something that is absolutely real, right? On the one hand, you know, will I have a successful experience of the Day of Judgment? Uh, on the other hand, um, how much awe and fear am I going to have? And on the other hand, how much regret am I, I going to have for like, you know, I should have done this and I should have done this and I should have done that, right? So I, I'm definitely much more focused on the Day of Judgment. Um, than I am on my death itself. Right? I hope not to have a painful death. Right? Yeah. Um, but even if that results in you know my sins getting washed away, then all right. Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, so just as a whole, if you were to review like your life, how would you describe the most important meanings you have discovered? Um. <clears throat> So, I mean, a lot of these, uh, I almost feel like I'm rehashing the same points, but... Um, yeah, sorry. They're very so, I've always... I'm sorry? They're very similar questions. Yeah. I mean, I've always had belief. Um, and I've only gone through very short periods of like, okay, how do I know if any of this is true? Um, uh, very, very short periods. And much larger periods of trying to figure out, all right, how to manifest belief, how to grow in belief. Um, yeah. Could you repeat the question? I forgot that. Yeah, it was um, to review your life as a whole. How would yeah. you describe the most important meanings you have discovered? I mean, so I've, there have been moments where uh, I'll experience something that kind of uh, expanded my understanding of life or moments where, um, uh, you know, I'll have an epiphany and some, some understanding about how things work, right? Uh, there's quite a few of those. Um, 
very, very frequently, mm -hmm. uh, just through the process of, of uh, reflection. Um, uh, I don't know that I always made the best use of many of these moments or epiphanies, right? Um, but like the biggest, those biggest moments would have been moments where I just had, you know, new understandings of just how, how things work. In terms of meaning, uh, my daughters did change my outlook quite a bit um, mm -hmm. in multiple ways. I mean, I had reached the point prior to the birth of the first daughter where I had completely detached from the world. I mean, I was immersed in the world, but I was completely detached from, from it. Uh, and then when the first daughter was born, she literally became my world. Like she became my dunya to the point that, I, um, you know, I was so insanely crazy about my daughter that I was almost willing to give up my salvation because I was so crazy about her, right? Uh, and I think parenting is that type of uh, insanity. Um, like literally, it's like a type of insanity, right? <laughs> Where you take leave of your senses. And and I even had to go through a whole, pro so, so they just by their existence changed my personality. Mm -hmm. um, um, Can you kind of elaborate on that? I mean, I used to be uh, a lot more uh, abrasive as a person. I used to have a much more quick fuse. And uh, a lot of that, just by, you know, the needs that a daughter has, uh, a lot of that stuff, you know, uh, has softened about myself. And, um, and you know, uh, like, I used to think about me being a parent ever since I was a little, little kid. And if you put it together, it's kind of like at the one level of my parent and my children, uh, I have this responsibility to the divine to raise these children, right? And at the other level, they're like my ultimate art project, right? I mean, even like their I'm names. I'm sure they would love to hear you. Oh, yeah, I mean, they've already heard all this stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, even like their names, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what are like perfect names. So the older one's Jannat Dasneem. So Jannat's Paradise Dasneem. Sorry, that's name. That seems my mom's name, right? That's my mom. Oh, gee. yeah. So, yeah. so, so you named her middle name after my mother, right? And so, which is a river in paradise, and then Jannah, which is paradise, right? I didn't know that. And then, um, and then my second daughter, we named her after her nani, right? Uh, Yasmin, and so she's Layla Yasmin, and so Layla is night. Yasmin is, is jasmine, right? A flower that blooms at night, mm -hmm. right? So Leila Yasmin, night flower. Mm -hmm. And then Jannah and Leila together are Leila and Majnun, right? So Jannah is coming from the same word, root that Majnun is coming from, mm -hmm. right? And so that's like, you know, one of the most iconic love stories in, in, in our tradition. And so I put in a lot of time trying to figure out what are the ideal names. Some of it is almost like that's what their names were destined for. Like, uh, my, my then wife, when she was giving birth to Layla, um, her father was very sick, so she gave birth uh, in Tampa. And I was flying down for the delivery, and Eric Clapton's song Layla just kept playing uh, on, the, on the plane. I thought, okay, I guess that means we're gonna have a daughter. And so when a daughter came, like, it wasn't even a surprise or anything like that, right? And so it's almost like part of me is figuring out these names, and part of me is just, just like, you know, what they were supposed to be named is, is, is coming forward anyway, right? The point I'm making is that um, they did uh, alter my sense of what is meaning and what are our priorities. So like I said, like at, at one level, uh, I see them as someone, you know, as two people that the divine has entrusted me with. Mm -hmm. At a level, like I said, they're, they're also like my art projects, right? Uh, because your child will be whatever you raise your child to be, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of
lot of times parents think that their child, their children are like almost on autopilot and just, you know, throw technology at them and then somehow they're going to be raised. Not, so like the, the time I spend with them is very, very deliberate, very conscious. Sort of. How would you say that kind of compares to like the way you've been brought up as compared to the way that you've raised your kids? Mm-hmm. I, think? I mean, I think a lot of that I, did, I, I got from my folks. Because, I mean, I remember my father in particular uh, spending a lot of time with me, um, even when I was just a little kid, mm-hmm. right? You know, my parents bought me a camera when I was a kid, and so, and they used to take me to movies when I was a kid. Uh, I joke, and this is true, that the first movie I saw was The Exorcist, and I was three years old, maybe two, when it came out. I remember watching it in the drive-in. And yeah, the a look drive in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my parents, you know, my parents didn't want to leave me at home, oh and they couldn't take me to the movie theater, so we used to go to drive-ins. Right? Oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> and uh, and so, like, I mean, they had just come to America, so they didn't know what a babysitter was, right? Yeah, so uh, they see those don't exist. Yeah, exactly. Unless it's, unless it's a sibling, it doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly, right? And so, yeah, I used to go to all these movies with them. My parents love scary movies, and and so, oh, what do you know? I get a film degree, um, but. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, looking back, my parents definitely did invest a lot of personal time in me. Things that I didn't notice at the time, and I didn't notice until I actually became a parent. Uh, both of them worked full-time for almost my entire life, but both of them were home uh, either before me and my sisters got home from school or shortly after. Mm-hmm. So my father and mother would both leave the house super, super early in the morning yeah. and, and then get back. Um, my father would get back at the latest probably like by 3.45 or something right, from a full day of work. And even in his latter years, um, he would pray five times a day in the mosque, right? And so Fajr, he'd do by our house, and then the other three, especially in wintertime, he'd leave work. And back then, um, the mosque was like 10, 15 minutes away. Mm-hmm. And so he'd have to leave extra early to make up all those hours, right? But, yeah. I mean, I realized in hindsight how much they were making sure to be home for us, right? And I was, of course, a bratty kid and everything. I didn't notice any of this until I became a parent. So the point is that a lot of it is just continuing what my folks did, maybe tr- sort of taking it to the next level. How would you say like Islam really <coughs> plays into like? You said that you grew up and your parents were very religious, yeah. and they kind of taught you that. How would yeah. you say that's kind of translated into like the way you raise your daughters, or just I mean, the way that you've lived your life? I mean, there's definitely a lot of parallels between how they raised me and how I raised my daughters. And a way to think about this is that, well, one thing is that when I look at the kids that I grew up with. Um, and I went to Sunday school with. And you find literally like this split. There's a few of us who became super hardcore. So if you know Mufti Harun Fidasi, who does Muslim funeral services, like he does basically, him and his brother do almost all the funeral services in Chicago for Muslims. So those guys and I grew up. So Mufti Harun, he went and became an Islamic scholar. Another kid I grew up went and became an Islamic scholar. Another kid I grew up with, he studied in Saudi Arabia for a while. He didn't become an Islamic scholar, but he studied overseas for quite a bit. And then there's me. And so there's some of us who take this direction, and then there's some of us who just totally went way off in the opposite direction. And I try to wonder, you know, why is it that I took this direction, whereas so many of my very close peers went in the opposite direction. I think some of it just has to do with the type of parenting that my parents gave me, and my immediate circle of friends. Mm -hmm. And so my parents were always religious, um, but it was not something they forced on me out of fear. Right? Uh, When I look at a lot of my students here, a lot of their parents make them be religious out of fear that they're going to go astray, right? Okay. Um, I don't think my parents had that fear. 
And I did go in all kinds of really, really bad directions. And my parents, my whole family is the kind that they're super invasive. Like, um, there was a point in my life where I was making a whole bunch of wrong decisions and my parents almost like metaphorically grabbed me by my neck, kept me inside of the house and monitored me uh, completely to the point that all my paychecks that I get from work, they'd take and they'd, they'd sort of give me a stipend from, right? So when I did go uh, off the rails, they would jump in, but mm -hmm. I don't think they had the fear that I was going to go off the rails and that's how they raised me religiously, right? And they focused a whole lot on things like character. And, and intellect, and I think that's all very much in my outlook now. Right? Um, and I do a lot of that stuff, not consciously trying to imitate my parents, but I do that stuff with, with my daughters quite a bit. Like I'll challenge them in their beliefs, or even challenge them to try to get them to say bad words. Like they, they pretend, they literally tell me, like we don't know any bad words. I'm like seriously, <laughs> you're teenagers, right? And to really make that point, uh, when my 16 year old was like two, uh, she was sitting in the back seat in her little car seat, and me and my friend were in the front. My friend said some some semi bad word, and he keeps talking, talking, and then my my daughter goes, "Baba, he said a bad word, right?" And she's two, right? And so, so so then you know we'll go to a store, or I'll say, you know, N O R F O L K, so Norfolk, Virginia. I'll say to them, "Can you pronounce that second syllable?" They're like, "Folk." I go, "No, you know that's not what it is, right?" So. I'll try to tease them that way, right? So, I know. But who knows, they might have these mystery teenage lives that I know nothing about. And I, Every kid does. And I'll, yeah, and I'll have to deal with it then. <laughs> yeah. They'll come out. Yeah. Um, so, I guess, what wisdom would you like to share with others? Um, uh, really, really make the most of your life, right? Uh, you know, so, at the one level, you're given one life, but I think it's too easy not to really dig deep and really appreciate the flavor of life, and that includes everything that's available to you in life, but especially in your relationships with people. You get to really, really get close to people and appreciate all the complexities and complications and contradictions of people, and that's like the flavor of it all, right? Um, someone who has no contradictions is not interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, someone who's full of contradictions is the one that drives you crazy and gives you the most joy. Um, and so basically really, really, you know, take life for, for, for what's available, which is another way of saying don't spend so much time looking at screens. Screens give you the illusion of life, but it's not really life. And I'm saying this as someone with a film degree, so much of my training is in screens. Right. Um, something like that. Just kind of following up with that. Now that you're like with the position that you hold, yeah, and because you're dealing with people that are 20, 21 years old, yeah. and they're going through a lot of life changes. Mm -hmm. Like looking back, if what would you tell yourself at this age, like knowing what you know now? Mm -hmm. I think um, something I started gaining in my later twenties is is appreciating the wisdom of elders. Uh, yeah, back then I was very skeptical of elders, right? And was this old bat going to tell me about <laughs> anything? And, um, and the way my life was working out was that I was spending a lot of time with people who were in their 60s, uh, more so than I was with people my own age. And as a result of that, I had all these unintentional mentors through whom I've learned a whole lot. And when I was younger in my college years, I wish I partook of that much more. Um, whether it's you know the secretary in the department or a teacher 
or just somebody in the community, just spending time with people who, who are way older and just seeing what they have to say about life. Uh, that's, what about uh, Islamically? And I would say the same thing there too. Okay. Um, you learn more about Islam by being with practicing upright Muslims than you do from lectures and books and all that. Because when you're attending a lecture, the lecture is designed, I've seen someone who gives a lot of lectures, the lecture is designed for a room of 100 people. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be somewhat general. If it's a one-on-one conversation, that's going to be very, very specific, but that's essentially going to an elder. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so, so uh, if you have the opportunity to, to learn Islam one-on-one, then absolutely take it if all you're learning is just hanging out together, right? Even if it's just talking about movies, because then you can observe how does this person talk about movies, right? Um, that's way more beneficial than... than uh, than books or lectures, because books and lectures are theory. Mm-hmm. But you're going to learn a lot from those things. But then when you try to put it into practice, then it becomes really beneficial. Right? But yeah, that's what I'd say. So it's, essentially, it's the same advice. Um, how would you like to be remembered? Well, I think I'm going to be forgotten. So. <laughs> As a great man, a powerful man. Um, As a typical desi uncle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great jokes. Uh, I hope that, um, uh, okay, so let's say remembered while I'm still alive, like when I'm not physically present. Uh, I hope people have positive memories of me. Um, there are some people with whom I'm not very nice uh, for various reasons, but by and large, I hope that when people think of me, uh, it's positive. Um, and even better than that, someone who benefited them in their lives, even if it was something tiny. Yeah, probably something like that. Um, can I just get kind of a general timeline of like your journey through Islam, of uh, like how you got into yeah, sure. the positions, is that in like the culture yeah. or like in the community that you got in? Just because like as a twenty-one-year-old, I can't possibly imagine like going down that path just because it's yeah, it's so strange. Yeah, it's it's strange, but it's also not non-traditional. It's just. You kind of think about like there's days where I question everything sure and it's like how do you go from like questioning everything to just having this un uh-huh. wavering uh-huh. like do you guys know what I'm trying to say yeah like, totally totally it's yeah just, I don't know I'm interested in the journey I mean so I was born at a young age it's my uncle jokes I was born at age zero <laughs> um let's think um I don't remember why, but I remember when I was like two years old, I was sleeping with my dad, and I was asking him who Muhammad was, and I don't even remember why, and and I also remember when I was like two or three, just thinking about the end of the world. Again, that's I don't know if those are normal things that two-year-olds think about. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, a way to to understand the point that I'm making is that I was I've always been reflective about these types of things, right? Um, and so I went through the usual Sunday school process uh, because we lived in the south side and south suburbs which is lower property value era area um, that's also where many of the more knowledgeable people of Chicagoland lived and so I had really great teachers mm-hmm. in my Sunday school um, I didn't appreciate it like no other kid appreciates Sunday school right um, yeah exactly right and it's also funny because I never you know it always used to seem like the longest day of the whole week it was two hours. I didn't even realize it was, it was only two worst. hours. Yeah. It was not two hours. My Sunday school was two hours. It was That's 11 MCC. to 1. That was like an entire day thing. Oh, yeah. For me, it was <sighs> 11 to 1. And 
uh, I, I could have sworn it was like like a like a fifteen hour day, right? And and I never looked forward to going. But you know, so like a lot of my Sunday school teachers were college professors, right? Mm -hmm. Or like uh, so there used to be this really large maximum security prison in Joliet, okay? Uh, Stateville. Oh, prison break. Does it take place there? I think so. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> so. Uh, long before there was anybody who had a chaplain was, they had a Muslim chaplain, okay. uh, who's actually Harun, uh, Harun's uh, father, meaning Mufti Harun's father. Mm -hmm. And so, so he was one of our teachers, right? So here you have this guy who's like this chaplain for prisoners, who was our Sunday school teacher, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so me having also run Sunday schools, uh, I didn't realize, you know, what a privileged Sunday school I had, just because of where we lived, right? And some of our Sunday school tutelage was the same as everybody else, and some of it was like a lot of really big questions anyway. Mm -hmm. um, then, <clears throat> uh, uh, also growing up in grade school, again, on South Side, South Suburbs, I was like the novelty in class. I was the, my, my grade school was 100, almost 100% white. So I think there was one African-American, one other uh, Gacy, one East Asian, and so I was like the one Pakistani. The only Muslim, and so I was a big novelty for everyone, um, mm -hmm. which also meant I got a lot of attention. Right, junior high, then it became 60, 40, 70, 30 white to, to black American. Mm -hmm. Then high school was probably 30, 30, 30 uh, white, black American, Latino, and then I was part of that other. Uh, so, my norm, and maybe um, many, many Muslims understand this, my norm was I was always the minority in the room. Right, except like dinner parties or something. I don't know how not to be the minority of the room, okay. right? Um, and and so I think that also automatically required me to just look at the world differently. Anyway, some people I think um, try extra hard to get accepted, uh, so they get attention. But I already got a lot of attention, and and other things. You know, I was a, I was a good student again, not um, consciously. Uh, so I was never lacking in attention. And also, like, you know, in our community, I also got a lot of attention because back in Pakistan, my grandfather was his big shot, and so I used to get a lot of attention because of that. But um, um, in college is when I really started addressing, like, the, the big, big questions. And that's when I really became, I really discovered Malcolm X um, and other ideas. I started discovering the humanities and such, which themselves were asking big questions. And so that naturally played into to my personal exploration. Same guy, Harun, I keep talking about him today. Um, he, he and I, he was one year older than me, but um, he and his brother left America and went overseas to study. And when they came back, Harun had this big long beard, he became a TJ, right? And he is a hardcore TJ. And, and so he did all the TJ things where he would uh, uh, I would take the train back home and he would meet me at the train station to take me to the mosque, right? And, you know, the first few times I'm like, man, I don't want to go. I mean, I also had a moment of honesty that I had no reason not to go. I just didn't want to. Mm -hmm. And so I had, like, those are like my epiphany type moments of, of self-reflection. So I start going and then... Um, um, during summer breaks, he, me, some other people, we would meet, you know, at fudger time. We'd pray together and we'd just hang out and talk about whatever, right? And also in that period of time, I also began to notice 
other people uh, or other things that were happening in the community. So this is the 1990s. Uh, we started becoming the big enemy in society. Uh, and so that was creating a sense of duty for me. And one particular moment that I remember is that we were watching some debate on video between Muslims and Christians. Mm -hmm. And one of the speakers in that video, I then he then came to Chicago to talk. And the difference was that in the video he had black hair, and in the speech live he had gray hair. A lot, all his hair turned white, or a lot of it turned white. And I thought to myself, all right, he's still like our main speaker. Um, if he's all we got, then what are we going to do? And so this increased in me a much greater sense of community obligation. What age was this? Uh, this would be probably 1993, so it was probably 21, 22. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, uh, uh, so I started really developing the sense that, oh man, we have to do something. Because like, what happens when all those guys die off? Right? Mm -hmm. And so that was also brewing in my mind. Um, occasionally I have questions like, you know, is any of this truth or not? But I didn't really wrestle with those as much, as much as how do I make sense of it all? And part of it, I think, because I'd already explored enough things where uh, it was fair for me to say Islam was smarter than me. And I think that's uh, the thing a lot of college students don't have an appreciation of. A lot of times college students think they're smarter than the material and they don't realize that's what they're thinking. And I don't think I had that issue. I think I always had the sense that, okay, even if Islam was written by a person, it's smarter than what I am, right? Okay. And so then it was more a question of me exploring, discovering what I could find. You know? And it wasn't until also right around that time that I decided, okay, I have to read the Quran cover to cover, uh, which I'd never done in English in translation. That took me about seven, eight months I was really hardcore for about four months and I stopped and I picked it up again. Um, and then I only studied the Quran probably, because I didn't feel ready to study anything else, probably you know, seven, eight years I didn't study anything else, right? And then I felt... Wait, can you kind of talk about that dip of like where you went hardcore and then you stopped? It was just like, you know, like I had this back. zeal. And it's funny, the actual moment, um, I was an extra in a bunch of movies and I was sitting there... Um, uh, as an extra in this one movie. Uh, what movie? Uh, it's called Natural Born Killers, and the director is Oliver Stone. Like Woody Harrelson's in it, Robert Downey Jr., Tommy Jones, and so you can actually see me. Uh, I, I played a prisoner at Stateville Prison, and. Um, <laughs> look this up now. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, if it's on Netflix, I'll look for the actual scene. <laughs> so, so <clears throat> I was also sitting there. And I had this collection of Malcolm X speeches that I'm just reading. Because when you're an extra, you basically sit around for hours, and then they shoot a scene, then you sit around for hours, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'd read that, and I'd chat with all these other guys who were at just different places in life. And what they had to say just didn't really interest me. But I found them interesting as people. Okay. Um, but then I just had this moment where I thought, okay, i got to read the whole Quran, because I don't even know what my beliefs are, right? And, and so... So I just started reading it hardcore, and I started writing um, every verse, every ayah. Uh, if it said something positive, I'd make a Word document of the positive teaching. If it said something negative, I'd make a, a, a separate part of the Word document, a negative. Um, and so this is, again, the early 90s. Microsoft Word isn't like it is now. Uh, I maxed out Microsoft Word uh, in terms of the size of the document. So the largest size document it could take, I think, was 500 pages. And I had five of those, right? Part one, two, three, four, five, um, where I was just writing all that stuff down. 
right? It was so it was literally like a twenty five hundred page, you know, book, so to speak, right? And so, so that I was doing very very intensively, and then and then that's also when I started film school, and so I put my Quran study to the side for a bit, and got into film school. But even film school, I was constantly thinking about Islam and stuff. Even all my movies were Islam related. Uh, and this was during college. So. This is college. Yeah. College years. Okay. And then. Uh, and then I realized, okay, I still haven't finished the Quran, so I have to do that. And so I just picked it up again. Uh, oh, you know what else happened? That book, I accidentally erased one of the files. Ooh. And back then there was no way to retrieve it. And so then I was like, oh, forget this. <laughs> and so, so then I got upset and I erased all the files, right? Total, total, it was like, you know, oh, total like erasing. Literally, it was like 2,500 pages, right? And... Um, and then you sat there and you cried after you no, it was like, you it was like, I don't know, I don't even feel like I lost anything, you know? It was just like, mm -hmm. okay, it's gone. It's all temporary. Um, and so that also killed my motivation to, to continue studying. And then, um, um, you know, some months later, you know, I felt the need to just revisit and then I kept reading, you know, all the way through to the end. And so what I do is, I, the first time I would just read through cover to cover, see what's positive or negative. Second time, just read cover to cover, different translation. And then I'd start reading with a pencil. And each time I'd read a different translation. So over the course of seven, eight years, I probably read like 10 different translations, taking notes like crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Anything and everything, questions that I'd have or you know, references or just whatever, my own interpretation, anything. And then uh, I would also start Quran studies, me and a couple of friends, and it was also just exploring what does the Quran have to say. Um, uh, and then I felt my heart ready to go through the biography of the Prophet, peace be upon him. So then... In addition to reading the Quran, I'd start reading the biography. And then I started reading Rumi. And what happened with Rumi is Rumi sucked away all of my thirst to read the Quran. And it was actually weird. Um, is that and, good or bad? Uh, it was probably more bad than good. But Rumi I found to be so mind-bogglingly profound that that attracted me more. Because the Quran, I thought, well, it's written by God, so it's profound. right? Rumi is a person. Mm -hmm. um, but everything later that I found that was profound about Rumi, he was just quoting Hadith. And, 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 and so, this um, I didn't later on. So then I had to rebuild my, my desire to study the Quran. And a lot of that was literally a study of, you know, the second surah, right? Or no, let me put it like this. There's me reflecting on the Quran, and then there's me studying on paper. Me mm -hmm. reflecting on the Quran, I probably spent years just focusing on the Fatiha, years just focusing on like the first 20 ayahs and when I say years I mean years in addition to just studying 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 and okay. then I started studying the biography of the prophet peace be upon him and then I felt ready to start studying the hadith and it was around that time that I went to grad school uh, uh, my master's thesis uh, I got a degree in liberal arts my master's thesis was on the Quran and then when I was getting when I started my PhD then we really got into intensive study of the hadith then I really started feeling comfortable studying the hadith and then eventually I felt comfortable in studying Islamic law, and then in Tasawwuf, which returned me back to Rumi. Um, and so that whole period I just told you about is like, you know, 20 years. Right? Mm -hmm. So there was always studying going on. And to put it in perspective, uh, I would take a one-hour train to work. That was all 100% study of Quran right? um, in translation. Mm -hmm. And also I was doing Arabic on the side, too. Most of my Arabic is self-taught. Right? Oh, okay. And then uh, on the train back, I'd sleep. Right, because I was just so tired. And then at night, after everybody was asleep, then I'd study Islam in movies probably for another two to four hours. 
which is why I had to sleep on the train back. Right? <laughs> that was my, my daily routine. Right. Just study, 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 study. You know, study. Uh, so this is before DVDs, and so I would study VHS tapes, movie scenes, and I had to rewind for 15 minutes, go back and forth. Which now, on a DVD, would take <laughs> would take like two minutes, but now online takes like four seconds, if yeah. that. Right. You know, I could have saved hours if, if this technology was here back then. And then I just study, you know, Islamic texts, you know, and that was my routine every hour, and I loved doing it. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, it was not so much prove to me that this is true. I didn't really have that issue. Um, it was, all right, how do I make it all work? And those are still questions that I wrestle with. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then um, just how would you say you got into the position that you are within the community? In chaplain? Yeah. Um, so chaplain and like within the community. Super dude man? Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, they're both also related. Uh, in terms of chaplaincy, it's easier to explain. So when I was working at the PhD, then I got a part-time teaching position at one college, which then led to a part-time teaching position at another college. So first was St. Xavier, then I went to North Central College. And then Marcia Hermanson contacted um, my boss at North Central College saying she's looking for a Quran teacher, uh, or into a Quran teacher. Mm-hmm. And so she approached me, but then it took a while to get this all passed. And so I was teaching in other places, and then eventually I got hired here. And when I started here, she specifically wanted me to get involved with the MSA because she was concerned about the directions it was taking. And and so I tried to get involved at first, but they all thought I was this, this raging liberal. And little by little, I got more and more involved. And um, and then they started pushing to to get a chaplain. And they put together this big binder that, that my boss over here has of you know a peti- this long petition signed by like 700 people and you know all these proposals for how to do it and at first the university started uh, working towards it and then for whatever reason they dropped it like saying we don't have any money and then a couple years ago they approached me again saying you know, we want to talk about this chaplaincy position but i didn't realize until like five days later is that they were actually interviewing me and maybe they understood it was an interview i didn't know but they just wanted advice oh. and so i gave them advice and they're like would you like to do that i'm like yeah sure and again I didn't realize that they were hiring me. And so I've been chaplain since then. Uh, Community-wide, part of it is I've just been involved in community a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, My first job after graduating from Phillips School, I was the first full-time employee of the Council of Islamic Organizations of Greater Chicago. And I was hired to produce a TV show. Super, super low budget. And I essentially became their office manager and their media rep. And so literally my first day at work, uh, was when it was announced that this basketball player, Mahmoud Abdurrauf of the Denver Nuggets, refused to stand for the national anthem. So you know we're talking about this football player right now? Yeah. This, this Muslim basketball player refused to stand. And so all this press was calling, and no one was talking. So I thought, okay, i got to talk to the press. So I was learning trial by fire all of these things. And so I was very active. My office was at the downtown Islamic Center. And so I just got to know people there. And then that was also my introduction to how the politics of the Muslim community works. And so I could only do that job for, for a short while and I had to quit. It was too much politics. Mm-hmm. Then I got a regular job um, uh, working for a healthcare company, just customer service, handling 80, 80 to 120 calls a day of people angry. Um, I still did other Islamic work on the side. And then uh, I was switched into IT and I got a job downtown. And this is when the IT boom was, was really at its peak. So I realized in my interview, I could ask anything from my, my proposed boss right now. 
So I told her, I want to go to the mosque for all my five prayers. She's like, okay, right? Mm-hmm. And I'll just make up the time. So I used to walk, you know, from my office, you know, the diamond-shaped building by Grant Park, uh, Stone Container. Uh, that's where I used to work. You, 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 it's, if you, it's in every picture of Chicago. Okay. It's like a diamond-shaped building. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that's where I work. And so I used to walk, you know, for like 10 minutes for each prayer. And so because of that, I'd also get more involved. And then they started asking me to give Jummah Chutbah. So uh, I did a few Jummah Chutbahs when I was an undergrad. But then now I'm doing Jummah Chutbahs with a room full of uncles, like 500 uncles. Okay. Imagine how scary that is. Yeah. And by the time I, I did my second chutbah, I felt like I had exhausted all my knowledge. I had nothing else <laughs> to say. And they kept making me do Jummah Chutbahs. And then I had to give the Jummah Chutbah on the Friday after 9-11. Right? And so, so, yeah, that was not easy. And then, um, and so, downtown Islamic Center was where, like, the big movers and shakers of the community were because they all worked downtown. But then I used to just continue doing things, and so just people got to know me. But when I started becoming a teacher, then people all across Chicago started asking me to teach or give lectures and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so at its peak, around 2010, 2012, no exaggeration, I was doing a thousand lectures a, a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, within Chicago? Or? Primarily within Chicago, right? So Saturday and Sunday would literally be like seven lectures a day. Um, and, and especially because of that, people got to know me, right? Mm-hmm. And then there are other community matters where I just wound up being in the center. Like, uh, you know, the case of the scholar who, who got out, um, you know, who was doing really wrong things with his female employees. So I happened to unintentionally be in the middle of that. And so I keep wind up, I, over and over again, I would wind up being in the middle of all kinds of issues. Um, and so, yeah, people just got to know me. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that's all the questions I had. Sure. Yeah, that should be good. Hopefully it'll be right, enough cool. for the paper. Cool. So what are you now? Are you a senior now? I am a senior. Don, don.